Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Managing Aspiration Risk with Medical Complexity. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. As a reminder, if you are joining us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz, before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. We encourage questions from our participants You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode or throughout the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No non-financial relationships exist. George Barnes is co-founder of Feasible Swallow Solutions. He receives compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. His non-financial disclosure is that he is part of SIG-13, Dysphagia Editorial Committee, and the NJSHA Dysphagia Subcommittee. And now we welcome our guest today, George Barnes, MS, CCC, SLP, BCS, S, a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders who has developed an expertise in dysphagia management focusing on diagnostics and clinical decision-making in the medically complex population. George yearns to make education useful, research clinical focused, and quality care accessible. He co-founded Feasible Swallow Solutions to expand access to high-quality dysphagia services and provide medical SLP coaching to SLPs seeking to be more successful in the field. With a passion for food and a deep appreciation for the joy and connection it brings to our lives, he has dedicated his life to helping others enjoy the simple but deeply rooted pleasure. George, we are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about managing aspiration risk with medical complexity. Happy to be here. Thank you for welcoming me on and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this very important topic that I have really developed a passion for. Well, we're so happy that you're here. So tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you came to focus on aspiration risk assessment with medically fragile patients. Sure. So I I started as a speech pathologist in uh, as a clinical fellow in the skilled nursing setting. When I first started, I, I didn't have a ton of guidance. You know, I had a supervisor who was not in the same facility as I was. She was great, available by phone, but a lot of what I did was sort of learning the ropes on my own, taking continuing education, doing as much as I could to go through ASHA and use their special interest groups to get whatever guidance I could in working with patients that did have a a certain level of medical complexity. And from there, I realized that we, we really don't have a ton of support when it comes to figuring out how best to manage medically complex patients and, and their medically complex disease processes. And so it did take me a bit of time to really grasp 
the concepts that we needed to fully understand in order to, to manage this patient population effectively. And so from the skilled nursing facility, I then transitioned into more acute care environments. I worked in acute rehab, a, a small community hospital that I still work in today, and the critical illness recovery hospital, which I started at about seven, almost seven years ago now. And that has really been where I've developed a lot of my expertise and my knowledge base. It has been where I've developed a passion for working with patients with a lot of medical complexity. And it's not an easy field to get into. It's, it's, I still find it incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult. And I think that I will, even if I spend another 20 or 30 years in this area. But it is also incredibly rewarding to find a method and a process that, that works, not only for specifically for swallowing, but also for managing patients as a whole, which is really what this topic is all about to me. It's about moving beyond just the swallowing and, and focusing on problem solving from a more holistic perspective, being able to understand the foundation of certain disease processes my concentration expertise is, is mostly on respiratory, so respiratory and aspiration pneumonia management, and sort of understanding the pathogenesis of a respiratory disease and specifically aspiration pneumonia in order to understand how we can best manage certain risk factors that increase the likeliness of that occurring. Really started with Susan, Dr. Susan Langmore's 1998 milestone article on is, is dysphagia important? Really, like what risk factors do lead to aspiration pneumonia? So it started with me reading that and like my head exploding and getting so incredibly excited about this area that I thought I knew everything about. And it turns out that I knew incredibly, an incredibly small amount. From there, I kind of took a deep dive into exploring that, that research world. I teamed up with another speech pathologist based in Virginia. Uh, her name is Doreen Benson, a, another speech pathologist based in Boston. It's Bridget Perry. We have been sort of exploring the research behind aspiration pneumonia and which, which risk factors are more likely to increase the risk profile and which risk factors maybe aren't so important. And so our dream with this project is to create a calculator that you would sort of plug in different risk factors that a patient may have. Say your patient has COPD, CHF, is aspirating, poor mobility. And so you kind of plug in these risk factors and out on the other side gives you a percentage to say, this patient is 75% likely to develop aspiration pneumonia if we do nothing. You obviously aren't going to do nothing. You're going to manage some of these risk factors, say, get them up and moving, manage their COPD through different respiratory therapies, and try to reduce the those specific risk factors in order to reduce the overall risk. I hope I'm being clear with kind of the takeaway here is that our goal is to clarify that dysphagia management and specifically aspiration pneumonia management is really about taking a step back from swallowing, not ignoring it completely, but taking a step back and seeing the, the patient from a wider angle to determine which risk factors are really most important here because dysphagia might not be the most important thing. And so to just focus on that would be sort of missing, missing the point. And so that's, you know, that's kind of my story. That's how I got to where I am now. And, and now I'm sort of still doing research and I'm trying to speak as much about this topic, not only to teach people, but also to learn myself and try to get a really good appreciation over the complexity of the complexity of medical complexity and, and also the complexity of aspiration pneumonia. Well, that is a fascinating story. And that research project sounds so interesting. Is that, are you currently working on that? Yes. And is that some, is that something that participants could participate in the study or what, what is the cohort that you're using? It's actually not a live study. It's an, it's a review. So it's a review of all current evidence. If 
there are speech pathologists listening that are interested in getting involved in the project, certainly email me and we'll see if we can get you involved in, in some way, shape or form. It, there's really been an outpouring of support for this project. It seems like it's something that people really believe in. They think that it can really make a big difference for the field, which is obviously something that resonates with me and, and why um, you know Doreen, Bridget and I have been putting in so much energy into this. We think that it, it can really, from a few different angles, can make can change the way we practice. Number one, it changes the way we see problems. Instead of thinking this patient's going to cough, they may get pneumonia, let's change their diet to this patient's coughing, what's going on? Obviously, take a, a deeper dive into what the cause of that coughing is. Is it even aspiration and, and kind of understanding anatomy and physiology enough to determine what's going on with the patient's swallow? But then also being able to zoom out and say, you know, what does this aspiration mean for this particular patient based on their risk? their risk profile, and what can I do to help not only with preventing aspiration, which is is impossible in some respects because patients are always swallowing their secretions. And that's, you know, that that's something that Dr. James Coyle teaches a couple of courses. And that always resonated with me where he kind of focuses on, you know, you can't bring the risk of aspiration to zero. And so that means you can't bring the risk of aspiration pneumonia to zero. Healthy individuals, me, you, we have a chance of developing aspiration and aspiration pneumonia, but the chances are is so small that it's, you know, we don't have to focus on the things that we need to focus on for patients with medical complexity. So it's sort of those two areas that are important to me. It's that we can kind of see the whole risk profile and that we can pinpoint what is the most important thing that we can be looking at. So which risks we are able to manage, number one, and which risks are worth managing. For example, a patient that their entire life revolves around food and liquid. It's, it's part of who they are, which defines a lot of people. If you're listening to this and that's resonating with you, it's like, yeah, how can you imagine a life without eating and drinking? For those patients, the cost of not eating and drinking is way beyond anything they would consider because of the effects that it has on quality of life. So we would take that into account when we're talking about a risk profile. And then you think about, okay, maybe this patient is open to being NPO, but, but then what's the alternative to eating and drinking? A feeding tube? Well, that carries risks too. So let's look at the risks. What kind of risks are we looking at there? It sounds really complicated, but the goal here is to simplify it really and to, to outline what risks are important so that we can sort of just easily plug into a calculator or until this calculator is available, we can kind of look through a list of risks to say, okay, my patient has this, this, and this. I know we'll, we'll probably talk more about this, but specifically they have all of the three categories the risk categories for aspiration pneumonia, okay, this is really concerning. Let me see how I can manage each one of these risk categories in order to at least lower the risk because you can never bring it down to zero, but at least lower it to a point that's manageable and at least appropriate in terms of like fitting into the context of the patient's goals. Mm -hmm. Well, that is really interesting. Fascinating research. And it's interesting, as you mentioned, quality of life, it'd be interesting to have a quality of life calculator as it relates to dysphagia. Mm, yeah, I like that. There's plenty of surveys with objective data that can be used to sort of plug that in and sort of bounce that data off of the more objective data we're getting from the research in terms of aspiration risk. So that can, that's a good idea. That's like incorporating it is, it's subjective because it's a survey, but making it objective in terms of what does that mean for the patient's prognosis and quality of life and being able to measure that stuff, which is, is hard, but possible. Yeah. It also helps patients and families understand it too. And mm. I just realized that I dated myself because I said dysphagia, you know, when I came into the field <laughs> to graduate school, it was dysphagia and now it's dysphagia. So tomato, tomato. So ex excuse me. <laughs> I, I think I like, I say dysphagia, but I think I like dysphagia better. It just sounds fancier. 
<laughs> All right. So, so let's dig in. So let's start at the very beginning and define a medically complex patient. Yeah. So, so medical complexity to me really means somebody that we're, that has multiple diagnoses. And so we're looking at a patient that has, you know, from a speech pathology standpoint, it's a patient that has First, I should say from a dysphagia management standpoint, it's a patient that has a swallowing difficulty, but it kind of falls in the context of all of these different diagnoses. And so it becomes very easy to, to look through a very long list. You know, I, I work in the critical illness recovery setting. I also work in a community hospital where we mostly see patients with advanced age, geriatric patients in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And so chart that I look at, you kind of pull up a page and you have all of these different diagnoses, like a snapshot of what's going on with the patient before I even look at the chart. I say, okay, so what's going on with this patient? And sometimes it's like 25 diagnoses. And it's like, at a certain point you're running through and it's like, oh my God, you, you kind of lose track halfway through. And so these are the types of patients that I'm talking about when I'm talking about medical complexity, but it can also be a patient that has three or four really significant diagnoses, say Parkinson's, a stroke with COPD. It's like these three things are all huge risks for for what we're doing in terms of dysphagia, aspiration, and aspiration pneumonia and trying to, to manage those risks altogether. What I was saying before is like you, you see a patient in the hospital and okay, they, they come in with an acute stroke. So you're automatically, you know, got the wheels turning. It's like, okay, where's the stroke? Is it brainstem? Is it uh, somewhere in the cor- cortex? Which area? Doing all the right things to determine what's going on. But then it's like, okay, but they also have advanced dementia at baseline and they're on all these sedatives because the night before they were flipping out in the emergency room. And they're also on oxygen because they were on all these sedatives and they started presenting with labored breathing. And so now you're starting to get confused. And it's like, oh, is the stroke like really the most important thing here? And what about all this other stuff? Like what about the dementia itself and all the confusion and the fact that they're not even close to what their baseline is? You know, do we wait? Do we start now? What what are the risks? So my the approach that I've found to be the most helpful is to kind of lay out all these risks and determine, you know, what can we do now? What's most important? And go through a, a systematic process to determine what can be controlled, what is, what's most worth it to you and the team to try to manage right away, and which things maybe we should hold off on. Very interesting. And that is, I mean, you've mentioned it, we're going to talk about it later, but let's just talk about it now. Yeah. Because I just love that term that you have not coined, but you're using it to apply to dysphagia risk management is, is zooming out. Yeah. It's a phrase that I think defines what I'm trying to do with this patient population. It's for many years in my practice, I've zoomed in. I've tried to understand the anatomy and physiology. I've tried to understand and, and, and analyze instrumental studies from, you know, frame by frame analysis of when the epiglottis completely retroflects and when the UES opens and closes and, and is the laryngeal vestibule completely closed or is there a little bit of shade, a little bit of uh, shadow there? Is that transient penetration? So, so that's our zooming in. And I think that our field has done a tremendous job of zooming in. We, almost to a fault, I won't say to a fault, but almost to a fault, because I think that we need to pull back now. I think that, and not to say that all of the work that we've done in making sure, you know, like the NBS IMP and trying to standardize mobile fees you know, fees, flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, and trying to standardize all of these approaches to swallowing are really good and making sure that we are analyzing these very minute details is incredibly important. And we need to continue to probably do more in that domain. But at the same time, I think zooming out uh, and seeing the full picture and, and, and having a foundation of knowledge when it comes to 
in my case, I'm going to keep referring to, you know, respiratory disease because I, I work primarily with uh, critical illness recovery. So lots of patients on traits and vents, patients that have a high susceptibility to respiratory infection, but it can be whatever your uh, specific caseload is. Maybe it's neurological, maybe it's spinal, spinal cord injuries, whatever it is, you know, having a very good foundation of knowledge when it comes to that patient population is going to help us tremendously in understanding the disease processes trajectory, meaning, you know, which patients are stable enough to be seen and managed right away uh, and which patients we should be holding off on and, and waiting to come in later sort of understanding what risks matter most to certain patient populations. So a good example here would be, you know, a patient with ALS and really high susceptibility to infection because of weak cough and poor secretion management versus say a patient with head and neck cancer. That is, you know, these two patients grossly aspirating are going to have two entirely different risk profiles that that patient with head and neck cancer that's up and moving around and doing push-ups at the gym is not going to be in the same ballpark as a patient with ALS that's reclined in bed and unable to move. Mm-hmm. Good examples. Well, that lead, leads us to our learning objective. Let descri- let's describe the pathogenesis of pneumonia. Yes. So the pathogenesis of pneumonia is simply put, a patient who aspirates, well, this is aspiration pneumonia uh, specifically. So um, aspiration pneumonia, a patient will uh, aspirate some harmful contents. That would be, that would mean something that's basically laced with some sort of pathogen, a microbe that harms the lungs, typically a virus, bacteria, or fungus. In the case of aspiration pneumonia, it's typically bacteria. And that's because uh, aspiration pneumonia usually occurs from the aspiration of secretions or the aspiration of food or liquid that is laced with that bacteria from those secretions. So that's the first thing that has to happen with aspiration. We have to have something enter the mouth and then enter the lungs from that direction. It can also come from the retrograde, from a retrograde standpoint, which means that it can come from the bottom up, from the stomach to the lungs. I I refer to the kind of, the aspiration as we understand it, kind of top-down aspiration is anterograde aspiration. So that's what patient swallows, say, you see them on video fluoroscopy, they're swallowing, it goes down the wrong pipe, so to speak, and it ends up in their lungs. Retrograde is when uh, a patient vomits or has a really large reflux event all the way to through the UES and into the larynx and into the airway. And that could have bacteria in it as well. And that could cause uh, aspiration pneumonia. That's the first step. First, we need something to enter the lungs and that something has to be harmful. Once it's there, the body has to be unable to fight off an infection or clear out the contents before it forms an infection. And so, you know, it's at this point, it's important to acknowledge that the the human body has incredibly functional, for the most part, when, when respiratory disease, it has not taken effect yet, has very, very functional and effective immune responses and respiratory defense mechanisms to protect itself against aspiration. Recent research tells us that pretty much everybody aspirates, especially in their sleep. And I always think about that and have to remind myself often of that fact when I'm pulling my hair out, trying to figure out what I need to be recommending for this patient to try to eliminate the risk of aspiration, right? Going back to that, the impossibility of bringing the risk of aspiration down to zero. We're not gonna take away their secretions, right? We can thicken up their liquids as much as we want or make them NPO, but they're always gonna have that saliva and saliva really is the main culprit. So at the end of the day, it's like, you know, what are we really doing when we're spending so much time messing around with the diets and the liquids if they're going to be swallowing their saliva all night anyway. 
So, so that always sticks with me when I, when I think really hard about, okay, what are the risks that I'm looking at here with this patient who's aspirating, you know, large amounts of liquid and, you know, is it worth making a huge change to try to reduce that risk at, at what expense, you know, is it at the expense of dehydration? Possibly. Is that the expense of quality of life? Possibly. And, Will it even do anything if the patient's aspirating their own secretions anyway? And so those are the types of questions I ask myself often. But going back to your initial question, that's the pathogenesis of aspiration pneumonia. And it's an important one to remind ourselves of when we think of, you know, how well this patient is going to do when we're when we're worried about them aspirating. Going back to that example of a patient with head and neck cancer, maybe they've They've just had radiation treatment, and it's really, really hard for them to swallow. So we eliminate them eating and drinking because, you know, they're aspirating. Does that really make sense when uh, their respiratory defenses are intact and their immunity is is intact? Probably not because, uh, you know, we, these immune defenses and these respiratory defenses such as uh, let's let's talk about a couple of them. We have the ability to cough. We have the ability to clear out our throats. We have something called mucociliary ch- uh, clearance, which is these tiny little hairs called cilia that line the entirety of our, our respiratory system, all the way down to, but not including the alveoli. And what these uh, tiny hairs do is, as we breathe and as we cough, they slowly mobilize materials up out of the lungs and into the throat where they can be coughed out or swallowed into the acidic environment of the stomach. And so thinking about and understanding these defense mechanisms really helps you kind of zoom out like we talked about and see the full picture when we're really concerned about somebody aspirating. And don't forget about our immune system, our ability to fight off certain infections as they happen, um, our ability to send white blood cells and immune system byproducts to a possible infection source in order to eliminate it right there on the spot. You know, if we didn't have these capabilities, everyone would be getting sick all the time. We're constantly breathing in stuff that does not belong in our lungs. And the lung's ability to keep itself clear and to um, to fight off possible infections is really incredible. And we have to give it a lot of credit because there the, that is doing most of the work. Us at the bedside recommending thick and liquids, that's last case resort that we might need at some point, but the hard work is really being done internally. Well, that is a, a different way of looking at it. You know, I wanted to follow up on two points and a good way to look at it, but two points that you made that, Everyone aspirates while they while they sleep. Tell us about that because I I did not actually know that. Mm-hmm. Very humbling to be the host and, and have to admit some things, but I did not know that. <laughs> so a, re- a recent research study, which I can provide you with, I'm blanking on the the authors and the title right now, but the the research says that this particular study tells us that 50 percent of the patients in this study aspirated in their sleep. So not everyone, but you can go, you know, you can speculate that most people at certain times aspirate. I think that you'd be pressed to find somebody that has never been in the, never been in the situation where they've taken a drink of water and started coughing incessantly because it went down the wrong pipe. That happens to everyone. And when we're sleeping, our sensations are reduced. We're in a prone position. Uh, And especially when we're sick, but really all the time, we have secretion buildup and we're not swallowing as frequently as we are during the day. And so secretions kind of creep into the airway. And this happens uh, very, you know, it literally creeps in because it happens silently. And so, you know, some of us may wake up from time to time and not really know it and kind of cough and clear our throats. And then other times it it just silently makes its way down to the airways where it either gets absorbed into the bloodstream or the next day we're kind of coughing, clearing our throats. And so we don't realize it, you know, we don't realize these things, but if we pay attention to our bodies, 
you know, during one full day, you, you would realize that, wow, yeah, I'm coughing a lot, clearing my throat a lot. I'm like constantly doing that. And that's your body's way of just keeping itself clear naturally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And then the other point that you made about aspirating secretions, that really brings up oral care. Yes. And the importance of good oral care. Can you touch upon that a little bit? Definitely. I, you know, oral care is so important. Sometimes I feel like we would do more to manage aspiration pneumonia if we just kind of walked around with a toothbrush and spent like our 45 minute sessions just like pounding people with uh, oral care information, because that really makes such a huge difference when it terms to when it, when it comes to reducing the bacterial load in the oral cavity. And so that's where aspiration pneumonia typically comes from. In fact, the way that the physicians diagnose aspiration pneumonia, the formal way that is, it can be diagnosed a number of ways, many of which are inconsistent and um, flawed in some way or the other, but that's a different podcast. The bacteria itself, so the type of bacteria can be pinpointed Uh, as a source from the oral cavity. So if a patient is having, um, experiencing, you know, signs of pneumonia and the concern is aspiration, they can do a sputum sample and actually say, oh yeah, this bacteria developed in the oral cavity. This is a type of bacteria that we find in and around the teeth and gums and tongue. And so for that to be in the lungs is concerning because this patient has pneumonia. And so Um, this type of bacteria is now flourishing in the lungs. This is an issue. Uh, And so that tells us that the patient must have aspirated something significant enough to cause a pulmonary infection. Hmm. And so oral care, yes. So (laughs) oral care is a way that we can reduce that risk with the price of a toothbrush. Honestly, it's the cheapest, easiest, quickest way that we can significantly reduce the risk of aspiration pneumonia. It's incredible. And it's also incredible how infrequently we see it done in certain healthcare settings. And there's a gap that really, you know, the speech pathologist can can be that point person and that hero for closing that gap and educating the team, educating the patient, educating the family, and how important this is, and and how much of a difference we can make just focusing on that. What do you do to educate on oral care in your settings? So it's best to start from the ground up. So talking to, you know, your CNAs, your nurses, your respiratory team, and sort of making sure that you and your interdisciplinary team and your peers are all on the same page. And that way, when your team members go into the room and talk to the patient and talk to the family about it, it's it's being addressed multiple times a day. And so I think it starts there. I think it starts with making sure that the team understands how important this is. And so it, it it's, it's, when, especially when we're talking about patients with medical complexity, when there is so much to deal with and to look at and to address, brushing your teeth can fall to the wayside, right? It, it's, it doesn't seem like that important in the moment, but it's, it's like one of those, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like paying for car insurance or something. It's like one of those things that you, you don't really think about or like contributing to your 401k. It's like, yeah, stinks in the moment. No one really wants to do it. Um, There's tons of other things you can be doing with that money. But over time, it is going back to oral care. It reduces the risk significantly if we can just get it part of the routine. Mm -hmm. So, right. So starting like from the ground, making sure everyone's on the same page, making sure everyone understands the importance of it, and then finding a family member. Uh, if not the patient themselves, a family member and saying, hey, listen, this is, I know it sounds silly, but if you clean your loved one's mouth every day, two or three times a day, 
and provide them with oral moisturizer as needed. These little steps that take a minute or two, maybe two or three times a day, can really make the difference between your uh, loved one getting pneumonia or not. Believe it or not, it really makes a big difference. And if they want specifically want to eat or drink something that wouldn't normally be recommended because, say, they're aspirating gross amounts of it, that can become part of the conversation. Well, if we're looking at a full picture and zooming out, like we talked about, starting with really good oral care is a great way to reduce that bacterial load. And that way, if, if and when you do aspirate, we're talking about maybe some clean water or maybe small amounts of clean secretions versus the bacteria that builds up in your, in your mouth and your throat from not brushing your teeth. Okay. We don't have a ton of time, but I also wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned retrograde aspiration. So what is the SLP's role in retrograde aspiration? Yeah, we typically don't diagnose when we're talking about GI stuff, but we certainly can help. We can refer to gastroenterology if needed. We can um, see possible signs of reflux, especially with instrumental studies, but you know, other signs as well at the bedside, like burping and complaints of throat pain after the meals and burning sensation and all of the signs that maybe point us in the direction that this coughing or this dysphagia might not be antigrade related or might not only be antigrade related. And remember, that's top down aspiration like we normally think of it. But may actually be attributed at least partially to a patient refluxing. And, um, you know, looking up the studies and the research that uh, specifically pertain to your patient population and figuring out, you know, what is the likelihood that this patient might be refluxing or vomiting um, and seeing, you know, how that relates to the clinical picture. That's a that's a good practice in general, looking at what's called the base rate and looking at, you know, this is my patient population, finding a good review of whatever question you're trying to ask. So specifically, an example could be, you know, my patient has Parkinson's. I want to know what the likelihood of this patient uh, aspirating from a retrograde standpoint uh, with Parkinson's. Okay, so you know what's the chances that my patient with Parkinson's has GERD? That's gastroesophageal reflux disease. So okay, and I'm making up this percentage. I don't know what it is, but okay, 25% in this one study, and this study was really well done. So okay, so that's one out of every four patients. Hmm, that's that's pretty high. Uh, so maybe I should look into this because they're showing signs that maybe they do have reflux, and so that's a good way to kind of. Again, zoom out, look at the overall risk and figure out, you know, how the research pertains to your uh, specific patient population that you see on a regular basis. And I know a lot of people might be listening and it's like, what, how the hell am I going to have the time to go and do a full research review on every single patient I see? And I know it sounds daunting, but Google Scholar, other really good search engines for research make it incredibly easy to find high quality research information really quickly. And if you are like most people, you're seeing the same kinds of patients uh, over and over again. And so it might be a good idea to kind of look up, say, oh, you get a, a lot of Parkinson's patients. Okay, so let me look up some information on Parkinson's when it comes to aspiration risk and reflux risk. So I went off topic a little bit there, but the big picture that I'm trying to paint is that we have a role to play in managing all sorts of things that revolve around swallowing and swallowing risk and pneumonia and pneumonia risk. And retrograde aspiration is one of those things that we can identify, we can recognize, we can make the right referrals, and we can help the patient also at bedside with management strategies, of course, collaborating with GI and, and the medical team to, to try to reduce that risk. Well, thank you. Well, speaking of risks, how do you, when, when there are so many moving parts to consider, how do you address the complexity of decision-making? How do you, what is your decision-making protocol when you're considering so many things, zooming in and zooming out? Yes. So 
I have a, a six-step decision-making uh, process that I use. It's based on a couple of different sources uh, for decision-making. I've done a lot of research on decision-making in general, not just in speech pathology and, and not even just in medicine. And I found that a really effective way to sort of make sure that you're looking at the full picture is to try to simplify what you're looking at into six major steps. And so the first step would be to identify the problem. What kind of problem are you looking at? What question are you trying to answer? When you were referred, what questions did the referring team have? So, you know, somebody wrote an order for a swallow evaluation for you to see this patient for uh, dysphagia management. What did that person want? You know, was it a, a patient that had a, an acute stroke and they want to see if the patient can start taking their medication? Is it a patient that is, um, you know, late stage dementia and possibly end of life and they want to see if a patient needs to be NPO or needs a feeding tube or if we can start a diet? Is it a patient that was coughing at bedside and they have no idea what's going on and they're thinking that maybe they're aspirating on their secretions or food or liquid? And so that is a starting point, especially with medical complexity. We want to make it, keep it simple and just start with what is the question that we're trying to answer here. And then we want to identify all the factors involved. So what are the most important risk factors? Uh, and in the example of aspiration pneumonia, it would be outlining all of those risk factors that fall into the three umbrellas of aspiration, aspirating something harmful, being bacteria from poor oral care, for example, and the host factors, that is the inability to clear out or fight off a possible infection. And so identifying all those factors and preferably having a list of them kind of drawn out for you that you can kind of just pinpoint very quickly and say, okay, they have this, this, and this. And so these are some of the things that we need to consider. And of course, typically the more factors, the, the higher the risk. So just being aware of that. And then assessing all the factors together. And they're not just the risk factors. We have patient factors as well. Uh, things like preferences, expectations, goals, tolerance for risk. That's a big one that I don't think we're always considering. You know, what is this patient's tolerance for risk? Are they, they willing to accept a high risk of aspiration and aspiration pneumonia if it means avoiding a feeding tube and continuing to eat things that make them happy? Um, or do they have a relatively low uh, level of risk tolerance and they're Goal is to be as safe as possible and to be discharged uh, without developing an infection. And so they're sort of on the other side of the spectrum. And of course, the only way to determine these types of things is through long, thorough, honest conversations with the patients, the interdisciplinary team, and the family, uh, and kind of figuring out what we're trying to do here, what are the goals, and what is trying, what we're trying to accomplish for the patient. And then once we have all that information laid out, we want to generate an approach. We want to think about all of the factors that we've assessed and come up with an approach that is based off of those factors that will lower the risk uh, in the most meaningful way for that patient. And, uh, you know, it, it really could be anything. It could be allowing the patient to have ice cream once a week. That that could be a goal for that patient. And what's the approach to getting there? Is it use of compensatory strategies? Is it, um, you know, not using ice cream at all, but instead using ice chips to lower the risk? Using oral pharyngeal exercises to improve rehabilitation. Um, so whatever the approach is, you want to target what the deficits are and, and assess and, and use the factors that you've assessed in order to, to move forward in with the least amount of risk possible. And of course, to always consider alternatives that we didn't choose, right? When we're choosing an approach, we want to think, okay, what, what's on the table here? What are the options? Um, so I always write out 
all the things that I can do with my patient. And then I choose what I think is the best one. And this is a good for, this is good for a few different reasons. One, it's telling you that your choice um, is not the only choice and it might not be the best choice. And then it helps you as you move forward and you, you get more information about the patient, whether it be, you know, this patient's really not tolerating uh, uh, and you're seeing signs that they are, the aspiration is getting worse and it's affecting the respiratory status, or the patient's doing much better than you thought, and maybe you were too conservative. And so then you could easily go back to those alternatives, uh, whether you've written them down or you've just kind of gone through them and, and you remember them and say, okay, well, now maybe we can go with something more liberal, or maybe we should go with something more conservative. And so uh, the last step is, is adjustment. So taking that information in as we move forward and adjusting, tweaking your plan of care so that it's addressing all of the, uh, the, the new issues or the new non-issues, meaning is the patient getting better and addressing uh, the new status of the patient as we move forward. Excellent. Well, you make it sound so easy, George. Thank you. <laughs> really? I feel like I'm making it sound more complicated than it is. <laughs> well, before I asked the question, I was a little overwhelmed. But after you just <laughs> broke it down those six steps, yes, we can do that. <laughs> All right. You know, when I'm talking about it, I feel like it's in my head, it's very easy because you, you know, literally listing out a few steps that you need to do to kind of look at the big picture and look at all the factors involved. I think that's the big takeaway that I want people to remember. If they are, you know, going into the hospital tomorrow and they're seeing a patient, the takeaway should be that there's a lot that we can do with each patient that we see. And coming up with a process, whatever it, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be the process that I just outlined, but coming up with a formal process so that we can see that full picture move forward in a way that we think is the best way and then adjust based on the new presentation day after day, week after week in order to fit the needs of the patient. That I think is the takeaway. Okay. All right. So tell us about current trends in dysphagia management with a risk assessment approach and how this differs from traditional, let's say, dysphagia treatment <laughs> approaches. Mm, dysphagia versus dysphagia. I knew those two would come together and <laughs> battle it out sooner or later. So yeah, I, I think that, so this, this approach that I've been talking about is is kind of like this new this new approach. Lots of people have been doing this for a very long time. I don't want to make it seem like I'm inventing something new. I learned this from, you know, Dr. Langmore and Dr. Coyle when I first started practicing as a speech pathologist. So, this approach has been used for decades. It's just it's not widely used. And so I'm I'm calling it a new approach because I think that it's it deserves more attention than it's been getting. Um, I still think that we are stuck in the times of eliminating the risk of of aspiration, maybe more, maybe more now than ever. And we're still sort of stuck as the diet police, right? The the modifying diets, textures, and liquids, making patients NPO, recommending feeding tubes. And doing all the like, which which I'm not saying is is it's certainly part of what we do as practitioners, but it, it's not it should not be everything. And I think you know it starts with a foundation of knowledge and understanding of the disease processes that you see, treat, and manage on a daily basis, and then it goes to an appreciation of the complexity of those disease processes and, and what it means, what that complexity means when you are making a recommendation. That your recommendation could have and almost always does have good parts and bad parts, risks and benefits, pros and cons. And so an acknowledgement of the risks and the cons and, and possibly the downsides of your recommendation 
is just as, if not more important than acknowledging that it could have a positive outcome on, on the patient. So traditionally, you know, I think that we focus highly on the swallowing itself. Uh, I think that we have been doing a much better job recently of focusing, focusing on anatomy and physiology and, and pinpointing the specific physiological deficits of the swallow. And so, so that's, that's what I see as the traditional way to look at dysphagia. And then, which is really important, and, and I'm not, uh, certainly not downplaying the importance of that, but, you know, a, a different approach, and again, one that has been widely supported for decades, is also to take that information and to put it in the context of the person, what's going on with this person, what's going on with their disease process, what's going on with their preferences, their expectations, their values, and what does the research say about possible ways that we can intervene and possibly reduce the risk and improve their outcome? And consider their quality of life along with that. Definitely. All right. Well, some SLPs have expressed feeling like they all work in a silo. I don't think there is one SLP I know who didn't feel like that at some point in time. So how does that silo model inhibit patient care and who are the key players in the interdisciplinary team for dysphagia? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because this, the interdisciplinary team framework is such an important part of looking at the whole patient and understanding the whole patient. It is sort of the entire thing because it's impossible to do without the experts of say, you know, I'm gonna use the example of respiratory disease, fully understanding respiratory disease would be impossible without having some sort of collaboration with the pulmonologist or the respiratory therapist. So talking about your initial question of working in a silo, speech pathologists have long been considered by speech pathologists as the redheaded stepchild of healthcare. We are part of rehab, but it kind of feels like a weird department to be in because, you know, we're not constantly doing exercises with people and very not some speech pathologists do a better job of, of this than others, but often we're not kind of working alongside physical therapy and occupational therapy. Our scope of practice and our goals for the patient sometimes align a lot more with neurology or pulmonology. And so being roped into physical medicine certainly makes sense to a certain degree, but it often in certain settings kind of ties us down and prevents us from going out there and really collaborating more directly with some of the professionals like otolaryngologists, ENTs, um, gastroenterologists, and, and even just you know, general practitioners and physicians that have a really great understanding of the types of disease processes that we treat and manage and overlap a lot in terms of scope of practice when it comes to swallowing related issues. So I think it's key, you know, if, if we're talking about this, this theme of zooming out and looking at the full picture, sort of the first step should be reaching out to your interdisciplinary team, forming those relationships, collaborating when appropriate, getting involved in team meetings, starting research groups, and, and really get into it with these professionals. Ask them questions, talk, talk to them about issues that you're having, argue with them if, if you have to, in order to, to really bring to light a lot of the issues that are, are difficult to grapple with by ourselves in a silo. And, and relationship building, number one, so that when you do have those tough discussions that could lead, and I say argue, but I really mean like a, a really in-depth and meaningful discussion, the relationship with those team members really is the foundation so that you can have those those really meaningful, deep discussions about really tough topics. Mm -hmm. Which in the end certainly helps the patients, right? Yes, that's what it's all about. It is all about the patients. Okay, so I know we're going to try to get into a case study. We have a few more minutes. But before we do that, can you just summarize the key considerations for aspiration risk? Yes. 
So the key considerations are basically those three umbrella categories that we talked about. And so we're talking about aspiration risk. And so that's typically dysphagia. It could be dysphagia from an andrograde or retrograde standpoint. And then we're talking about what is being aspirated. And that's typically from an oral health standpoint. And then we're talking about the host factors, the medical complexity, if you will. What is going on with this patient that may make them more or less likely to clear out or fight off a possible infection? Those are the things that we need to look at when we're talking about aspiration pneumonia risk. You can have risks in one of those categories. You can have risks in two of those categories. But you need to have risk factors in all three of those categories in order for aspiration pneumonia to occur. And that's why it's really good to list out those umbrellas and all of the risk factors that might fall under those umbrellas. And so, for example, from a dysphagia standpoint, that might be confirmed aspiration on video thoroscopy, patient status post-stroke, for example, a patient with a history of aspiration pneumonia, a patient with uh, Parkinson's disease, and then looking at the specific risk factors for aspirating harmful contents. And that could be patients that have uh, dried, thick secretions in their mouth that are unable to be cleared, a patient that has really poor oral health assessment tool score, OHAT score, so dried, cracking gums or a tongue. That would increase the likeliness of, of bacteria buildup and increase the likeliness of aspirating something harmful. And then the host factors can be endless, could be COPD, could be CHF, anything that your patient has that may reduce the likeliness of them coughing or clearing out potential aspiration, could be the respiratory status, dependence on oxygen, then the host factors in terms of the immune status. What does this patient possibly have that may lead them to immunodeficiency? acuity of illness, for example. And so the best way to do this really is to, to outline all of the risk factors that are determined in the literature. And I have a list that we can post or share that I personally have found. It may not be comprehensive. Again, we're going through the research now in a more formalized way to, to try to categorize these risk factors a, a little bit better. But I have my own list that I use for my patients so that I can quickly reference that and say, okay, they have this, this, and this. So this is really important. They have all three categories and they have lots in each of the categories. So, okay, there's a high risk we're dealing with here just to give myself a picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. That would be great if you could share that or if you couldn't provide your email, if someone could email you to get it. Yeah. Can you go ahead and give us your email and then we'll- I certainly can. Should I just put it in the, the chat box? Well, if you don't mind saying it, so people who listen to it will be able to hear it. That makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> this is a podcast. So it's george at feasibleswallowsolutions.com. That's G-E-O-R-G-E -E at feasible, F-E-E-S-I-B-L-E, -E, swallowsolutions.com. And I can certainly share that information for you guys too, if you wanted to put it up like in the podcast notes. Yes, that would be great. We can okay. add it as a handout to the course and people can get it after that. That'd be great. All right. So I just love the case studies. So being HIPAA compliant, of course, will you tell us about a case study when working collaboratively with an interdisciplinary team? and using a risk management approach had positive outcomes that you don't feel like you would have had those positive outcomes had you not been working with an interdisciplinary team. Definitely. These types of things happen very frequently in what I do because of working in a critical illness recovery hospital. Working with an interdisciplinary team is essential in this type of setting. I can give an example. I saw a patient my first instinct was that this patient had a, a tremendous amount of risk. Um, looking at the patient's diagnostic lists, one of those kind of laundry lists that goes on and on, I'm getting really intimidated by it. Although I'm, I'm walking into the room and seeing that the patient's doing quite well eating and drinking. 
acknowledging the risk, but also acknowledging the fact that at the bedside, the patient's eating and drinking without any issues. So it's sort of a juxtaposition there that's making me, giving me pause. And so I talk to the team. I say, hey, what do you think here? You know, I, I see the risks, but I also see their tolerance level doing great. At the time, it was a restricted diet. So I think a patient was on pureed solids and thickened liquids, but I did a bunch of trials and the patient looks fine. You know, what are we doing here? What kind of risk we're looking at? And of course, bouncing these ideas off of the pulmonologists and the attending physician and the respiratory team really helps me self-reflect on what's most important, which risk factors we're looking at at and which risk factors could be the most meaningful to the patient in terms of having a negative outcome, and then looking at the big picture. And of course, when it comes down to it, the patient has a very low risk of aspirating, at least from our bedside assessment. And so, you know, going back to the basics, if, if the patient does not have a high risk of aspiration, they're more likely than not, not going to end up with aspiration pneumonia. And so talking to the team helps me come up with this conclusion, but, all, but also I keep going back to the fact that this patient really could develop aspiration pneumonia with all the medical complexity going on, but she doesn't want to do an instrumental study and it really would have been inappropriate at the time anyway. So, you know, we move forward with the regular diet and then this patient a few days later gets what we think is aspiration pneumonia. And so I'm like freaking out and flipping out here. I'm like, I knew I should have done a fees. I should have taken a look. This was totally my fault. And so this is when the real tough discussions come in. We talk to the team. I talk to them about my concerns. They talk to me about their concerns. We decide that, you know, it may not be aspiration pneumonia. It was diagnosed that way because they had, you know, she had just had this advanced diet. She has an abnormal chest x-ray that seems to be worsening. But let's take a look because there's no signs of infection. So the pulmonologist says this could be a number of things. First of all, the chest x-ray is showing an infiltrate on the left side. And the infiltrate on a chest x-ray could be a number of things. So I'm going to suggest doing a bronchoscopy, taking a look and seeing what we find. Because she's had a, an abnormal chest x-ray for a long time. We should really take a look. And it turns out she had a mucus plug. Secretions related, not food or liquid related. They suctioned it out. And after that, she did wonderful. She had no issues, was discharged, no problems at all. And so I think that's a good example of kind of the thought process that goes into, you know, what's going on with this patient? There's all this risk, but they look great. And now it's like, oh, oh now all of a sudden she has aspiration pneumonia. And, you know, I could have totally freaked out, made the patient NPO, you know, forced her to do an instrumental study and been really conservative. But I think talking it over with the team really helped us, again, using that term, zoom out and look at all of the possibilities so that we can pinpoint the one that's most likely. Well, that is an excellent example and a very positive outcome. So thank you for sharing. Of course. Now, speaking of sharing, we're just about out of time, but you have been sharing your wealth of knowledge and expertise and experience as a mentor in a few different ways. Can you talk about that? Yes. I'm with speechtherapypd.com. I am a mentor. And a lot of what I try to do as a practitioner and what I'm trying to do in the field with my research, I have transferred over to the, my mentorship through speechtherapypd.com in basically a more interactive approach to decision-making on a case-by-case -case basis with a cohort, a group of individuals through an education process that is extremely interactive and helpful in a way that you can kind of bounce ideas off of each other and come up with opportunities for learning and for growth, not only from a purely lecture standpoint, but also providing time to kind of really get in deep to issues specifically pertaining to the cohort to help them like on a personal level. Excellent. Excellent. And you have already started your, your first cohort. Hopefully you'll be doing one again next year. I hope so. Yeah. We have to talk more about that, but I would love to. 
Well, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much. It has been so interesting and educational to talk with you. I know I learned so much and I hope our participants have as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? No, I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Mary Beth, for hosting. Thank you to SpeechTherapyPD.com for hosting and for everybody for listening in. I, I hope that you found it enjoyable and I hope that you learned something. I don't mean to speak from our participants, but I, I will. I, I think they have, at least as a, a host and participant, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, all right. Well, as a reminder, if you joined us for the live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Have a great evening. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.